Good morning. Great to see you all this morning. Great to have some visitors and great to see folks back who've not been able to attend. And it's just great, isn't it, to gather together to worship God together as his people. So it's great to be here. It really is. And uh, again, great to see Beth here as well this morning. I, I imagine probably Beth has pr- probably watched lots of movies uh, while she's been incarcerated. That's kind of intensely what happens, isn't it? You watch lots of movies, you, wa- you read lots of books. Well, if you like Disney movies, you might have seen the movie Anastasia, which was released in 1997. It won quite a few Oscars as well. Well, here's the official trailer we're going to watch. I don't know whether the real Anastasia has been taken the world by surprise since she was born. For those of you who don't know, Paula Victoria's daughter is called Anastasia. Well, Anastasia the movie is loosely based, very loosely, given that it's Disney, based on the story of the Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna of Russia. She was the uh, youngest daughter of the last Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. And along with the rest of her family, she was executed dur- in 1918 during the Russian Revolution. But then in 1920... A lady called Anna Anderson turned up in Germany claiming to be Anastasia. And a story was that she'd been helped to escape by some of her Bolshevik guards. And she conveniently had some memory loss, so she couldn't remember all the details and so on. She died in 1984, and then when her body was actually exhumed in 1994, DNA tests were done. And they were compared with Prince Philip, who is a very close, or was a very close relative of the Tsar a very close blood relative, and she was found to have been a fake. The whole story was a fake. It was a lovely romantic story, a young, innocent princess escaping from death, trying to prove who she really was, but ultimately she was proven to have been a fraud. Disney made loads of money out of the story. There were other movies made about her as well, but ultimately she was proven to have been a fraud. Her identity was false. She wasn't who she said she was. If she had have been, can you imagine the the kind of deal that that would have been? She'd have been the rightful heir to the Russian throne, but she was a fake. Her identity was false. And the remains of the real Anastasia, this finally confirmed the whole story, the remains of the real Anastasia were found and identified in 2007 in Russia. She had sadly been executed along with the rest of the Romanov family back in 1918 by the Bolsheviks. Identity matters. Our identity matters matters and most importantly of all Jesus identity matters as we read the Bible and as we're seeing as we're looking through and studying the the gospel of John at the moment we've seen as we've looked through Jesus life that Jesus claimed to be God come as a human being Jesus claimed to be the son of God Jesus claimed to be the Messiah the Christ God's chosen king to come and rule and reign in God's world And if Jesus really was who he said he was, then the implications are enormous. The implications are massive. They couldn't be any bigger. They couldn't be any more important. The writer C.S. Lewis once said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who we believe Jesus is and and, and was and continues to be is the most important decision that we will ever make in life. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus demands that those that are listening to him and those that read his words throughout history decide who he really is. Jesus demands a decision from the people that he confronts. And he tells us what happens if we choose not to believe him and not to believe his claim to be God. And also what happens to us if we do choose to believe in him and about him. Identity matters. Jesus' identity matters. And what we choose to believe about Jesus' identity then affects our own identity in the most important of ways. In the passage that we're looking at today, which is John 8, again, Jesus makes some huge claims, some massive claims about his own identity. And as he does so, he gives a really stark warning to those who then reject the claims he makes. So we're going to read from John 8 again today. We're going to read from verses 21 to 30. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me, all the verses or or most of the verses that we're looking at today will be on the outline that's on your seat. And there's things there for you to write in if you want to use those if you find them helpful, but you can just listen as I read, or you can turn with me. We're going to read from uh, John 8, and we're going to read from 21 to 30, continuing from where we left off last week. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, "Will will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be or that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Jesus claims twice in this short passage that he is God. And if you're not kind of really paying attention, you might miss those claims. He makes it clear that if we fail to accept his identity, then we will face the most important consequences that we can imagine. In verse 21, we read this, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? When Jesus says that he's going away, he's referring to his death and then his subsequent resurrection and then his ascension back up to heaven. And he says that the Jews will look for him. He doesn't mean that they'll go looking for him personally because they're personally interested in him. What he means is that they will still be looking for the Messiah. They will still be looking for him. They'll still be looking for the Messiah, this special king that God had promised throughout the Old Testament because they had refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. So they'd still be looking for the Messiah. Because they'd refused to accept that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah, they would, as a consequence, die in their sin. 
They would die without their sin being dealt with. That's what it means to die in sin. And the specific sin that Jesus was referring to here was the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Every sin can be forgiven by God, except the sin of unbelief. Because if you think about it, if you choose not to believe, then you can't have any sins forgiven, let alone the sin of unbelief. If you're refusing to believe in Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if we don't have our sins forgiven, then according to Jesus and according to the Bible, God will punish us for our sins, for all our sins, for all eternity in what the Bible calls hell. Jesus expands on this in verse 24 where he says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. Jesus says, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. And this phrase, I am he, was and is a really important phrase. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself to Moses and the people of Israel and he uses this name, which uh, is, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, or it sounds roughly like Yahweh. In the, in the English Bibles, it's translated as Lord with capital letters. But it literally means, I am who I am. I am the self-existent, eternal one. I am who I am. That's the name that God reveals himself by. He simply is. He always has been, and he always will be. He is the I am. I am just eternally self-existent. And in the Old Testament, God then also uses the phrase, I am he, when he's talking to various people. You see this particularly in the book of Isaiah. And he uses it to say, I am he, I am Yahweh. In other words, I am he, I am the I am. I am that person. And the two phrases are almost identical. God says, I am he. In other words, I am the I am. And that's the phrase that Jesus uses here when he says, if you do not believe that, I am he. In other words, if you don't believe that I am the I am, that I am the eternal, the self-existent God, the only God, the one who created all things, if you don't believe that about me, says Jesus, you will die in your sins. You'll die without your sins being dealt with. And as Jesus, as Jesus uses this phrase, this phrase, and we'll see this a little bit more next week, some of the people begin to realize what Jesus is saying. They begin to realize who Jesus really is claiming to be. Verse 28, Jesus then says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The Son of Man was another title that Jesus used to describe Himself and to refer to Himself by. And it comes again from the Old Testament. And it describes the one that God will send at the end of time to judge everybody, to judge the living and the dead, and then to rule and reign. Forever. And Jesus says here that he is the Son of Man. He is this one that is coming to judge everybody and to rule and to reign forever. Jesus says that he is that special person. And he says that they're going to lift up the Son of Man. And that was Jesus' way, again, of referring to the fact that they were going to crucify him on the cross when he'd be lifted up there six, about six months later from these words that he says. And those who then believed in Jesus, when they saw what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross would know that Jesus was the I am. They would know that Jesus was that one, the self-existent eternal God. He says, then you will know that I am he. In other words, that I am the I am. They would know that everything Jesus said and did came from God, came from God the Father. And the fact that Jesus then rose from the dead proves and proved that he was this one, that he was the I am. 
Romans 1 verse 4 says this, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the one that the Old Testament refers to as the son of man. And he claimed to be the Messiah, God's anointed chosen king. And Jesus says to the people that were listening to him there in the courts of the temple, that if they rejected his identity, if they rejected who he claimed to be, if they refused who he claimed to be, then they would die in their sin. And the sin of unbelief is the greatest sin of all. Sin of unbelief is the greatest sin that we can commit. It may be this morning that you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus that you've not accepted that he is God. Maybe you think a bit like C.S. Lewis was saying earlier, that yeah, he was a great man, a good moral teacher. The logic of that doesn't stack up. Maybe you've not accepted that he is God come as a human being, that he is the Messiah, God's chosen king. And, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm not darkness like we looked at last week. That, that's, a, that's a kind of horrible thing to say about me. I'm not darkness. I'm a good person. I, I live a good life. But, you know... According to Jesus, none of that actually matters if we don't accept who Jesus is and accept him as our Lord and as our Savior. It's not just believing that he existed. The people that were listening to Jesus and standing there in front of him that day, they believed that Jesus was real. They believed he was there. They just didn't believe who he said he was. What we're talking about here is believing that he is actually God, believing that he is God come as a human being, the one who will one day rule and reign forever. Jesus' identity really matters. And what you do with Jesus' identity, what we do with who who Jesus claims to be, really, really matters. Because if we reject Jesus as God and as Lord, then according to Jesus, we will die in our sin. We'll die with our sins not having been dealt with. And if we die in our sins without them dealt with, then we will face Jesus as our judge, and we will face God's wrath against our sin for all eternity. And that is a, a horrendous thought, isn't it? face Jesus, the perfect one, as our judge with all of the stuff that we've done in our lives that we know is wrong and ultimately the greatest sin to reject him. Anna Anderson claimed to be the Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia, but she was a liar. She was a fake. She was a fraud. Jesus, on the other hand, really was and is who he claimed to be. And the fantastic thing is this, that if and when we believe in Jesus and if we put our faith in him and and trust in him to save us from our sins, to deal with our problem of sin, then our whole identity is completely and utterly transformed. We, We are completely changed. By believing in Jesus' identity, our identity gets to be changed and transformed. We've seen over the last few weeks how when we trust in Jesus, we've seen these various kind of pictures that Jesus uses and the Bible uses to describe people who accept him and those who reject him. We've seen how when we trust in Jesus, we go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, spiritually hungry to spiritually satisfied, spiritually thirsty to never thirsting again, to be, from being spiritually blind to being able to see, really see. From being in spiritual darkness to being in spiritual light. And what we see in this passage today is that when we believe in Jesus and surrender to him as Lord and and make him our Lord and Savior, then we are no longer in sin. If we don't do that, we die in our sin. But when we accept him, our identity is transformed. We're no longer in our sin. 
Those who reject Jesus' claims about his identity die in their sins, with their sins undealt with. Those, on the other hand, who accept who he is are no longer in sin. That's an amazing position to be in. And we're going to look at what some of the kind of outcomes of what that means this morning briefly. In verse 28, we read this. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. The reason that Jesus could be lifted up, as he puts it, which was his way of referring to his sacrificial death on the cross, was because he was the only one that could be our perfect substitute sacrifice. Nobody else was capable of doing that. Jesus says here that he only spoke the things that God the Father told him to say. And he always did what pleased God the Father. It's quite a claim to make, isn't it? There has never been another human being that has ever existed that has always done what pleases God. Not only did Jesus not sin, but Jesus always did everything in thought, in his speech, in his actions that pleased God. And so because he was that perfect person, he was able to take our place on the cross. He was able to be our perfect substitute sacrifice there on the cross. And whilst hanging there on the cross, God placed all your sin, all my sin, there on Jesus. Jesus took your place, took my place, bore the wrath of God against all your sin and against all my sin. Romans 3.25 says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus, God the Son, came to be a, a sacrifice of atonement, a, a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath and turns God's wrath from wrath into favor, that's what it means, sacrifice of atonement. It changes God's wrath against us into his favor against us. It's, the technical word is propitiation. Instead of those who are, by very nature, objects of God's wrath, that's what we deserve, we become those who receive God's favor. We're accepted by God into his family. Our identity is completely turned upside down. And we get this, according to Paul here, by putting our faith in Jesus as being who he said he was and by doing by in, uh, what Jesus did there on the cross for us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still in our sin, still dead in sin, still destined to die in our sin, Jesus died for us. And because he died for us, if we then receive by faith who he is and what he's done for us, then our sins can be dealt with, our sins can be removed. Through faith in who Jesus is and faith in, who, in, in what Jesus has done. In taking the punishment for our sins, our identity is transformed. Our identity is completely changed. We're no longer stuck in sin. We no longer die in our sin. So if you've trusted in Jesus today, then you are no longer in sin. You are in Christ. Write that on your outline. If I've trusted in Jesus, I'm no longer seen, as, seen by God as being in sin. I am now in Christ. That's my position. That's my identity. How God views you has completely and utterly changed. God no longer views you as a sinner. God views you as someone who is in Christ. All of your sins, past, present, and future, they have all been forgiven. Ephesians 7, sorry, Ephesians says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And all your sins, if you've trusted in Jesus, have been forgiven, past, present, and future. No matter how bad they might have been, no matter how bad they may yet be in the future, no matter who, 
no matter what you are yet to do, you are a forgiven one. That's not a past thing. It's, it's a continual state of existence. You are now a forgiven one. That is who you are. All your sins, write this down, have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. You may not feel very forgiven. The Bible says you are forgiven. You stand forgiven. Trusting in Jesus has totally transformed your identity. You are no longer who you once were. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation at all. We were sinners. We were stuck in our sin. And so we were condemned and, and, and facing God's wrath. But now we're in Christ. There's no condemnation. All our sins gone. All our sins have been removed. The Bible uses this phrase, in Christ, as a way of describing, particularly in the book of Ephesians, those who've trusted in Jesus. It's our new identity. We are in Christ. And the amazing thing is that if we're in Christ, then not only has God forgiven our sins and removed them, he's also made us holy. So a little bit like being in debt. If I owed Paul uh, a million pounds, I'd be in debt of a million pounds. If he comes along and, and wipes the slate clean and says, right, I've forgiven your debt, that would be the equivalent of forgiving all my sins. But I'm still, I still have no money. I have no credit with him. If Paul then says, come along and says, I'm going to put another million pounds in your account, then, I'm in, then you're in credit with me. That's what God does to us. He forgives our sins, but then he also puts credit into our spiritual bank account. He gives us the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. We're now in Christ. This is what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy. Isn't that amazing? If you've trusted in Jesus, then you are now holy. You might not feel very holy, but that is your new identity. It's not dependent on how you behave each day. It's not dependent on how you behave tomorrow, what you did yesterday. That's not saying our behavior doesn't matter mishear me but it's not our our status in Christ is not dependent on what we do it's dependent on what Jesus has already done for us and our faith in him and the Bible has a name that it gives those that God has made holy in Jesus the Bible calls them saints if you have trusted in Jesus then according to the Bible you are a saint if you've trusted in Jesus you are a saint you might think well you know normally isn't it isn't it the case that you have to do something really amazing to be classed as a saint or, or to live this really holy life well that's not what the bible teaches not at all according to the bible a saint is somebody who has been made holy by trusting in jesus that is what a saint is according to the bible we don't get to be called saints because we do something good we get to be a saint by trusting in jesus and having become a saint we then spend the rest of our lives doing our best to do good things the bible refers to those who have trusted in jesus as being saints or holy ones in the new testament those who believe in jesus are never identified as sinners that's what we were it never identifies us as sinners it identifies us as saints or holy ones or righteous ones over 200 times that is your identity you are you were a sinner christ died for you when you were still a sinner now if you've trusted in jesus you are a saint those who don't believe in Jesus are identified as sinners over 300 times. We are, if, we, if, if we're believers in Jesus this morning, God no longer views you as a sinner or calls you a sinner. He views you as a saint. That is your new identity. You were a sinner, but you're not any longer. So write that on your outline. I have been made holy. I am a saint. 
who sometimes sins. In case you think I'm teaching that we suddenly become perfect, I'm not. We still sin. But our identity is not as a sinner. We are saints who sometimes sin. You are a holy one. You are a saint, not because you lead a sinless, wonderful life, but because Jesus led a sinless, wonderful life. That's why you're a saint. And because you've trusted in his power to transform your identity completely for all eternity. Those who don't believe who Jesus is die in their sins, according to Jesus in this passage, according to his own words. But those of us who do believe in Jesus, in who he is and what he's done for us, then their sins are forgiven, they're removed. They're made holy by God. If if you don't believe me, just look at Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That doesn't mean that you don't sin. According to the Bible, I'm a saint, but I'm only too well aware of the sin in my life, and any of you who know me well enough will also be very aware of my sin and my failings and all that kind of stuff. The the reality is that we are now saints, that's our identity, who sometimes sin. But when we sin, it doesn't change our identity. It doesn't mean we go back to being a sinner. It just means we're not behaving according to our new identity. Up until I was 14, I lived in West London, and we often used to go as a family to Windsor, which is about 20 minutes' drive from where I grew up, and we'd go for walks in Windsor Great Park, just in the shadow of Windsor Castle, Um, and in those days, I'm kind of talking sort of late 70s, security wasn't anything like as tight as it would be today, and you would often see, and I'm not joking here or exaggerating, you'd often see the Queen driving around in a Land Rover with a headscarf on. I have actually seen this. She was on her own, no security, just driving through the Great Park with a head. That, that's not my picture. That is off the internet. But I have seen her in a headscarf in a Land Rover when I was a kid. You would never have known it was the queen. She didn't look like a queen. She wasn't wearing a crown. She wasn't wearing a tiara. She wasn't behaving like a queen or the queen. But was she still the queen? Of course she was. And that's the same for us if we've trusted in Jesus. We are saints. We've been made holy by God. But we don't always behave like saints, do we? We don't always behave in a very holy manner, but when we make a mess or when we fail God in some way or other, that doesn't change our identity. It doesn't change who we are in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you are holy in God's sight. You are without blemish. You are free from any accusation against you. God no longer calls you a sinner. If we think of ourselves as being sinners, and, 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 and lots of Christians I talk to think of that, you see them say, well, I'm just a miserable, worthless sinner, and I know I've been saved by grace, but I'm just a miserable. Well, some of you do look a little bit miserable at times, but God does not view you as being miserable, and you're certainly not worthless because Jesus died for you. You might be unworthy, but you're not worthless. These are words we should never utter about ourselves, because they... They devalue, downvalue the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Jesus thought you were so incredibly valued, he laid down his life for you. So we're not worthless. We're not miserable. We're not sinners anymore. We're now saints. Worthy, unworthy, but changed into the identity of Jesus through faith in him. If you trusted in Jesus, then you are holy in God's sight. You're without blemish. You're free from any accusation. God no longer calls you a sinner. If, if we think of ourselves as being sinners, and, and lots of Christians still do this, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, you are saved by grace, but you're no longer a sinner biblically. It's not a biblical concept. If we think that we're still sinners, how will we behave? Like a sinner. If 
we think we're a sinner, we'll do what sinners do, we'll sin. But if we think of ourselves biblically as saints, because that's, what, that's who we are, that's what we are, people who've been declared to be holy, then how will we behave? Well, like saints. We are holy, so therefore we should be holy. Just as last week we saw that we are light, therefore we should be light. Our behavior should flow out of our identity. What do sinners do? They sin. What do saints do? They are supposed to live holy lives. That's what saints are supposed to do. Those who reject Jesus' identity die in their sins, but those who accept Jesus' identity and surrender their lives to him have their sins removed and are made holy. They are in Christ. Jesus also contrasts himself with those who are listening to him that day by saying this, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. And what he was saying was that they were part of this whole fallen world system, whereas he was from heaven. His kingdom wasn't of this world. And, and, and that's true for everyone. We're all born into this fallen world, and we're all part of it. And if we reject who Jesus is, then we continue to be part of it. And if we continue to be part of this fallen world, then we will, as Jesus said, die in our sin. But when we trust in Jesus and surrender our lives to him, we're no longer part of this fallen world. We still physically live here, but our identity has been changed. We're now part of God's kingdom, and God's kingdom exists wherever he is Lord in someone's heart. It's not a physical kingdom with geographical borders. We're now part of a heavenly kingdom, which has completely different values, completely different standards. They're the values, the standards of Jesus. Philippians 3.20, speaking about those who've trusted in Jesus, says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love Americans. Well, most of them. But you can always spot an American. I hope there's no Americans in the room. That would be really bad. But you can always spot an American. And, and the same should be true of us. When people look at us, they should be at a spot that we're not from here. We are different. We might look the same as everybody else physically, but there is something different about us. It should be obvious to others that just as Jesus is not of this world, so now because we're in Christ, we are no longer of this world. We're different. The standards, the behavior, the, the ethics, the values of Jesus should be ours. Just as Jesus was holy, so we should be holy. So our behavior, write this down, our behavior should match our new identity. We are holy, therefore we should be holy. Our allegiance is no longer to this world and, and, and to all the stuff that goes with it. It's not to our nation. It's not to a particular human cause or struggle, no matter how worthy they might be, or to a, a political ideology. Our allegiance should now be to heaven. Our citizenship's in heaven. Our cause, the struggle that we should be giving ourselves to and for, is Jesus. It's his glory. It's his fame. Jesus' identity matters. It really matters. And what we do with Jesus' identity really matters. It, it, it really matters because it affects our identity. And our identity affects where we spend eternity. If we reject Jesus, then we die in our sin and we'll face God's wrath for all eternity. If on the other hand we accept Jesus' identity, it will transform our identity. We'll be in Christ, we'll be forgiven, we'll be free from condemnation, we'll be reconciled to God, we'll be made holy, we'll be accepted by God, we'll become part of God's kingdom, we'll be citizens of heaven. And then our new identity should transform our behavior so that we'll live and behave in ways that then reflect that new identity.